This is Courtney Gaines Malachi from Children of the Corner. You're listening to Now Playing Podcast. Let us give thanks to he who walks behind the rose, who protects our crops. The God of sacrifice. The God who walked on the face of the earth. He who walks behind the rose. speak to me in my dreams and God has told me that it is now our time time to make sacrifice time to kill welcome to now playing's children of the corn retrospective series it is written a leader will come from the corn part of the now playing Stephen King movie review series I offer this to he who walks behind the rose Hosted by Stuart. This is my game. I've played it before and on better courts than yours. Jacob. He thought he had great spirit. And Arnie. Question me not, Malachi. I act according to his will. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new movie review based on the works of Stephen King. I've read the book, and for the first time in my life I know my purpose. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Did your mother teach you how to talk like that? Only when your name came up. Listener discretion is advised. The time of judgment is now at hand. Let the harvest begin. Outlander! We have your podcast! Discussing Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. Starring... Daniel Cerny, Ron Melendez, Jim Meltzer, Nancy Lee Gron, John Clare, and other people whose names I don't care if I pronounce right either because you've not heard of them. Directed by James D.R. Hickox. Did my cast list bore you? It's me, Arnie, the modestly dressed co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is he who podcasts behind the rose with cornrows because we're getting urban, yo. Jacob. <laughs> you should have been he who talks behind the rose. <laughs> Come on, no mention for Charlize Theron. This is the screen debut of Oscar-winning actress Charlize Theron. Here, it's happening right here. Wait, what? Yeah, she's one of the kids way in the background. I'll cite the actual frame. She's in about three frames <laughs> of the film. I caught them, too. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> she gets a close-up. Yeah. She only gets one. Everybody else that he gets two, she gets one. They didn't know what they had. Also, the screen debut of Nicholas Brandon from Buffy for fans of that show i don't know who that is but yeah i'm glad to see you went on to other things it's good to know that corn can yield something good <laughs> i wouldn't have expected that here we are three in i know we've got what six more to go after this Woo! tough road to hoe i'm full i'm full i can take a nap you guys finish this feast <laughs> I was encouraged by one name. I gotta say, we're talking about credits. Screaming Mad George is here. I've enjoyed some of his uh, special makeup creations in Return of the Living Dead 3. He did some of those fun toys in Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. He did the cockroach in Nightmare 4. I mean, that's where 
where I learned who Screaming Mad George was. Yeah, I'm interested to see how he's doing it. These movies have been pretty tame. As far as the violence goes, I would like to see a little bit more splatter. I'd like to see a little bit more creature design to this world. They could use, well, they could use a lot, quite frankly, but they definitely could use some Screaming Mad George here. Well, here's what's got me excited. This is the urban harvest. This is where we go urban. This seems if the slasher franchise goes long enough, it's going urban or it's going into space or it might go both. This isn't my kind of genre, but I love it when it goes ghetto or into space. Like Friday the 13th, (laughs) I've seen Jason X. That's the only one. And he went urban with Manhattan. I will have to check that one out then. Yeah, yeah. Although he kind of spends more time in Times Square, but... Yeah, I agree. They are a staple for series that don't know what to do with their slasher anymore. We'll send them to funny locations. Maybe the Wild West, you know. This is a true, what, fish-out-of-water comedy. That's what I'm prepared to watch, is, okay, here are the kids from the Hayseeds that are going to come to the gangster neighborhood, and it's going to be a clash of cultures, that they've entered the realm of parody. I think Dimension, this is the first one that Dimension's actually commissioning, right? They were involved, along with several other studios, with releasing that Drek last week, but this is now a Dimension Miramax property. Yes, they own it and are pumping them out right along with Hellraiser sequels. This movie is directed by the little brother of the director of Hellraiser 3. Well. Keeping it in the family. Mm-hmm. Good to have connections, I guess. Now, this is where I jumped out of the cornrows here. I have not seen this film until this viewing for this review or any of the future corn films other than the remake where I foolishly had hopes it might be good and watched it on its sci-fi premiere. Just again, if you've listened to Prime Directives, any of the reviews of our Made for Sci-Fi stuff, if it premieres on sci-fi, it has to be bad. It's like the anti-smuckers. But this one, it came out in theaters. This one also had a theatrical release, the last Children of the Corn film to get a theatrical release. What release? What Iowa cornfield did they throw this up on? It opened on my 21st birthday. Strangely, I had other plans. I was doing shots of Jaeger at a bar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you definitely have other plans on any day, really, than going to see Urban Harvest in theaters opening night. If it's your 21st birthday and you're seeing Urban Harvest alone, give up. Yeah, I can only imagine how sad the turnout was for this movie. What did it gross? Those numbers are unavailable. Ah. (laughs) But not enough to get the fourth one in theaters. I hear ya. Okay, so it's the mid-90s. If you're making slasher movies, you are going straight to tape. And it's tape at this point. It's not even DVD. This is not a surprise to me that, yeah, horror was disappearing entirely from theaters. It really wouldn't get a renaissance until, what, another year later when Scream came out. This is a pre-Scream slasher movie yeah i have low expectations i guess the barometer is can it be as good as freddy six or halloween six or there's miles difference between freddy six and halloween six sir freddy's dead and curse of michael myers i mean that's a very wide stretch super wide all right arnie give him the plot we'll find out how the distance is just as far for children of the corn three yes i invite our listeners to head to our archives as we've reviewed both freddy six and Halloween 6. I know, I think I actually recommended one of them. (laughs) See? There's a divide. (laughs) (laughs) It just meant that I was weak. I had a moment of weakness. Who knows what that meant? Joshua and Eli are two children of the corn who have moved away from Gatlin, Nebraska, and been put in a foster home in the big city. 
Chicago, Illinois. Joshua, the seemingly older boy, starts to do well in the city, making friends in school and even starting a romance with schoolmate Maria. Eli, on the other hand, isn't fitting in quite as well. He refuses to dress in modern clothing, he's upset with his brother's assimilation, and he spends most of his time in the yard of an abandoned factory where he tends to his rows of corn, which have grown remarkably in just a few weeks. It is Illinois, we're good at that. I actually live less than an hour from a place called Cornland. Eli instead starts to make his own new cult in the Windy City after upstaging school principal Father Nolan in a sermon. Soon many of the children, even the violent ones, join Eli to worship he who walks behind the rose. And in fact, Eli is killing many people in service to their corn god. In the film's opening, he killed Joshua's abusive father. He also killed the foster care worker who discovered old news articles from Gatlin that showed Eli hasn't aged in over 20 years. And several other people die, including Eli's foster mother. Some killed by Eli, some killed by the corn, which seems to come to life and have a bloodthirst all its own. Eli's foster father, William, however, works in the commodities market and sees dollar signs in Eli's magic corn, which grows fast in shitty soil. He plans to ship the corn across the globe, though when William interrupts one of Eli's sermons, the boy cuts his foster father down as well. It's down to Joshua to stop his foster brother. Through a dying father, Nolan, it's revealed the source of Eli's power is his Bible, which was left in Gatlin. So Joshua and his friend Malcolm drive there to retrieve the book. Malcolm is killed by the corn, but Joshua returns and impales Eli and the book together with a scythe. This causes he who walks behind the rose to raise from the ground, but Joseph cuts him off at the root, seemingly killing the giant beast. But while Joseph and his girlfriend Maria seem safe in Chicago, we see William's deal has gone through and the corn has made its way to Germany as credits roll. So a lot to talk about. I already mentioned this is directed by the brother of the person who directed Hellraiser 3. I didn't realize that until after I was done with the movie and doing my research. But what I did realize was this music certainly sounds a hell of a lot like Hellraiser 3. And sure enough, it's done by Daniel Licht, who did Hellraiser 4 score. So right from the opening credits, I had hope. I'm like, Dimension Films, a Hellraiser-ish score. I might enjoy this. See, only Arnie takes that as a good sign. It's going to be like <laughs> Hellraiser 4. That's something we all should aspire to. No, no, no. After Children of the Corn 2, Hell yeah <laughs> a lot of weird sound effects in this one i didn't notice the score but i did notice that this was the one that had all of these just strange noises that didn't seem to fit in with what was going on here background whispers and things i don't know what the sound mixer was doing here but they were on a different train of thought than i think everyone else was but we go back to gatlin there's some consistency here i was thinking they might just pick up and set it in a whole different world i wasn't sure how connected it would be but they go back to the town where it all began gatlin now populated 123 people i should be said repopulated there are people moving back there among them a drunk crop grower who likes to beat his stepchildren hold on hold on a couple of questions there first so that's what happened they moved back to gatlin because i was very confused how anyone was living in gatlin because the timeline has been a little fluid so many years passed between one and two and yet it was days i just thought that they were breaking continuity it says that the father, like, he was a, what, struggling, I don't know what you call them, when you're crossing strains of DNA to make the best kind of crops, like, mad scientist. 
scientist. They make it out like this dude's a scientist that just yeah. moved to Gatlin to work on his corn crop that was going to make him rich. Like, it's weird because, okay, these people, I take it, Joshua and his father at least, moved there, but they're dressing just as Amish as everyone else is. Yes. They decided when they moved there, it wasn't enough to just bioengineer corn. They were also going to adopt a child. And, uh... <laughs> Did they? <laughs> yes. Okay, because I also wasn't sure if Eli lived in that house. I mean, I know they call him Papa, but I wasn't sure. What house? There's a trailer. <laughs> the trailer? <laughs> well, the trailer. The home. The okay. homestead. A bioengineer's trailer. Who <laughs> <laughs> is also a drunk. Yeah, and beats his children that he just adopted. Yes. I'm like, why take it on? I mean, if you didn't want it, I mean, there's no wife in the picture to help you out. I It's a confusing family circumstance, but I think I get it. It comes late in the movie. Joshua explains to his girlfriend the history, and what I got was that, yes, the biological father and son, I never did get a name for the dad, but the dad and Joshua came a few years ago to Gatlin to strike it rich in genetically engineered corn. <laughs> adopted this ghost child who has lived for decades in Gatlin, apparently killing people. And then when it didn't work out, we see in this opening scene that Joshua and Eli are going to run away, though not before turning the dad into a scarecrow. Again, I kind of thought that it was a little bit of a Hellraiser-ish effect, the way his eyes and mouth were sutured. And it set a tone for me. If this is going to be like one of those later Hellraiser films with a lot of deaths that are going to be very inventive, I might be able to go with that. It was a very cool death. It was certainly the best death we've seen in three movies so far. Hey, I'm all for entertaining kills in these films. That's why, frankly, I think two was slightly better than one. I was more entertained with the death. So I, I agree with you, Arnie. If I could get some, it doesn't even have to be realistic or scary. If it could just be cheesy, like practical effect deaths here, like this sewing of the mouth. Yeah, I could go with this. I could find some kind of enjoyment, hopefully. Yeah, I'm seeing a vibe here that reminds me of those movies I've mentioned before. Return of the Living Dead 3, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. It's really cheap looking, but not as cheap as last time, or even the first movie, that there is still a stylishness that makes it feel playful and kind of silly. I think that's a good tone. I think it's the right choice when you're making a Children of Corn 3 to wink at the audience. And that's what I get when I see him. Yeah, he's like strapped up on the scarecrow pole. Joshua doesn't even notice. He notices the book going into the ground, but he doesn't notice his dad who was chasing him with a scythe, trying to chop him in half, <laughs> getting turned into a scarecrow. He's got a strange attention span, I gotta say. Really, this actor who plays Joshua, his name's Ron Melendez. I don't know him from anything else, but he's kind of a tall, beefy, blonde guy who reminded me a little bit of Dauber from the TV show Coach who played a mentally challenged guy in The Stand. So when he's not noticing his father and he's like taking orders from the little kid, I spent the first 15 minutes of this movie thinking that Joshua was mentally challenged. Well, he's clueless. I didn't think he was mentally challenged. I just thought, oh, if he's not familiar with city life, then we're expected to think he's a rube that knows nothing. And so we're actually, I'm surprised that he ends up actually assimilating quite well. Once they get to Chicago, he adjusts pretty quickly. He it doesn't let the fact that his father tried to spear him just a few days ago detract from the fun of having a pickup basketball game or going to talk to the neighbors. I think that he will do just fine here. It's the fact that Eli has tagged along that means that we're going to stay within a horror realm. Here's the thing. I have a little brother 
named Eli, kind of looks like this actor, kind of acted like he didn't go around oh. preaching, but it was always trying to get me in trouble. Like, I hated this Eli because it reminded me of growing up with my little brother. And that's what I get here. I, I get this sibling relationship. We'll find later on that he's the adopted kid, but I do get this relationship. I didn't expect to find a, a relationship I could relate with in any of these corn films, but this one's working for me. The younger brother who, you know, at first he doesn't want to lose his big brother, but it also then becomes creepy like he's the religious one he doesn't want his brother wearing you know gentile clothes they want to stay in those amish clothes and not play basketball sleep in the same bed together don't get a girlfriend (laughs) yeah it's it's very invasive but you know yes younger brothers can do that i am a younger brother i do remember being jealous of my brother growing up and having other friends than me i i see some reality to this relationship sure what do you guys think eli's plan is i mean he obviously knows killing the father that they're going to go somewhere, but being a supernatural being that he is and the powerful creature he is, he seems awfully willing to just go into foster homes. I mean, is he trying to invade a larger territory? Is he tired of terrorizing Gatlin? It's never explained what his motivation is, but you'd think he might have just tried to stay on the farm there himself and take care of him and Joshua, but no, they're whisked away very quickly to Chicago for foster care, which, I mean, it just seems a little unusual given what we've seen of the corn previously where they kill the parents and take care of themselves he's got a suitcase full of corn and dreams i mean and bugs (laughs) you know i think that he's a very capable young man and that wherever he lands he will turn it into a field for hubie i think that that's his attitude is no matter where i go i can grow corn and still have my evil corn deity come and i don't know recruit children for me because yeah we see Eli, he's been alive for at least decades, goes back at least to the 60s, and he's been in Gatlin that whole time, right? Always as an eight-year-old. I mean, he looks really young, single digits. Yeah. Now that you do bring it up, Arnie, I'm just glad we're getting to the city. I want to get out of the country. I want to get out of Nebraska. I want to get to the city. Because here's the thing. This is why I love when movies go ghetto, because they're such awful parodies and stereotypes. Like, they're unintentionally funny to me. So when we get to this school and all the urban kids, or I don't know, it's not cross colors in 95 but whatever brand that was they have all their brightly colored clothes in a what a catholic school where they don't have uniforms is it a catholic school is it a public school it's got a priest running it i don't think there's priest principals in public schools there's a chapel they go to they force the students to listen to sermons this is not a public school oh yeah arnie absolutely and it's chicago to boot which is heavily catholic i mean no i actually think they get chicago very right here they wind up in bronzeville this is sort of the Harlem of Chicago and it's got a long history the whole area yeah no they get it right they have to do a matte painting to show you that the house is there they didn't actually film there but they actually the locations that they do shoot at the culture that they have the Chicago Board of Trade later plays a factor in here I actually think they get the details of Chicago pretty spot on and yeah this is a Catholic school but I went to Catholic school as well as public school and I'll tell you if I wanted to find somebody with a butterfly knife who wanted to cut me that was at the public school you didn't find those people in the Catholic private schools because quite honestly they're really expensive and selective you just don't find that many gang members in Catholic school well you didn't go to Southside Chicago Arnie that's the difference that we're expected to fly you know it is a stereotype I'm gonna say this Jacob I was prepared for this to be much more heavily X 
accentuated than it is. I was prepared for a Wayans Brothers movie. I thought that they would make it really over the top, and I thought that the horror would come from, yeah, corn getting them on drive-bys and just making ugly racial stereotypes. I actually feel like, other than one basketball scene in which it's accompanied by rap and banjo music, they veer away <laughs> from the country and urban stereotypes that the title kind of sells us. This is really not about corn in the hood. No, they were really going for that white men can't jump kind of thing right there with that basketball scene, though. They were trying to be hip and get that Wesley Snipes, Woody Harrelson vibe going. Definitely. Again, I don't think it's a good thing when movies stereotype, but it's kind of a guilty pleasure when you see Hollywood get something so wrong, or I don't know if this actually counts as Hollywood, but... It's Miramax. It's certainly Hollywood. It was sanctioned by Hollywood, but probably not made by Hollywood. It was made in Hollywood. It was. This is filmed all in L.A. Well, some of the pickups are in Chicago, because I recognize streets. They used uh, stock footage of the city, but they did not film Chicago, not a frame. Yeah, no, I can believe that. But maybe you'll get what you want when we get to Leprechaun. He spends two movies in the hood, and I don't think he's going to hold back. I've seen Leprechaun in the hood because it takes place in the hood. Did Freddy ever go to the hood? I've never seen a Nightmare on Elm Street film because I don't think he's gone to the hood. He has uh, recorded with the Fat Boys, but <laughs> they kind of went to his street. He didn't come to theirs. He, yeah. he kind of went a little bit more urban in Freddy's Dead. Slightly. Kinda. Well, yeah, the place went to see the whole <laughs> Springwood, but, uh... He yeah. was dealing with drug addicts in a rehab center, so... Yeah, I guess so, but not in the way that you might desire, Jacob. I don't recommend it for you. You say this is getting Chicago right, Stuart. How many really nice houses owned by yuppies live in the shadows of skyscrapers <laughs> with factories in the backyard? Like a factory a foot away. Seriously. It's called Bronzeville. It's exactly this. There are beautiful beautiful houses in Bronzeville. Amazing. You can't believe them. Houses like this. And they're right next to Urban Decay. It absolutely exists. Now, it has changed. Every time I go back to Chicago, I do see that that landscape changes and there are less and less abandoned factories and more and more grocery stores and targets. But yeah, this is actually accurate of that area at that time. Like, okay, I get in the same neighborhood, but next door to an abandoned factory, like, there's got to be a housing code violation going on there. There is something going on here that remains subtext. The fact that they are being adopted by a white couple that seems affluent, you know, he works at the Chicago Board of Trade, they're wealthy enough that she doesn't seemingly have to have a job, she just spends all of her time growing a garden, and yet he doesn't want them talking to the neighbors who are all black. Yeah, I picked up on that right away, like, Joshua being a good neighbor, like, here's, you know, what you would think is the redneck kid that would be suspicious of people of other color, but no, he's right in there playing basketball and it's the dad that comes up and says, hey, don't hang out with them. That's bad news. Yeah, I think there's two things going on. I think for some reason, the dad decides very early on that the older brother is the one to watch, the one that he doesn't really like as much. He broke a glass angel. Yeah, they break that beautiful, <laughs> priceless, really. I mean, I don't know what I'd pay for that angel statue. Which you put in the room for your foster kid. I mean, yeah. we had this exact conversation with Child's Play 2 where they use this exact same plot contrivance of the kid going in the foster home and breaking the expensive item, but still. Sure, but yeah, they have a, a scene dedicated to setting up the fact that the father thinks the older one needs some work, but I also think that the father is just sort of trying to establish himself in an upstart neighborhood, that he would rather that his neighbors not be his neighbors. He would rather be 
living in a different area of Chicago, but has bought a really nice house, hoping that he can be part of a, a gentrification wave that will eventually turn into his kind of people. But I get the sense that they're in the South Side, but they're not from the South Side. And I think we're meant to hold that against him. I think that him ultimately siding with Eli and working together when he finds out that Eli is growing corn at this abandoned factory, that he actually wants to encourage it and sell it (laughs) at the commodities exchange. I mean, that's not how the commodities exchange work. (laughs) Yeah, I I was confused by that. Like, can you just be like, I got some corn to sell, like grown in an abandoned factory. Can we just (laughs) send this to Germany? (laughs) They may get the geography of Chicago right, but they get the border trade all the fuck wrong. But you know what? This is a long history, though, that the Chicago is the place where they set prices for all farm produce stuff. This is actually a big part of the city's identity. I thought it was cool that they brought it in here, that they didn't understand it. Well, I worked there and I didn't really even understand what was going on. It is confusing, but yes, obviously, this is a superficial take on it. I appreciated it. I actually thought it was a fun, something we don't necessarily see in a silly slasher movie, this kind of character, this kind of plot. When he finds that corn, will William just grabs an ear, sniffs it, and then eats it raw. Now, I know I'm the one of the three of us who still lives the closest to cornfields, but nobody does that, right? I mean, no, you got to boil that for a reason. That stuff is hard. You're going to crack your teeth. Yeah. I mean, I grilled corn for a good 20 minutes till it's nice and juicy. Who the fuck can taste it raw and go yum? It's the special strain. That's the whole point. Yeah, it's the delicious coin. It comes out and no bug wants to eat it. You don't need pesticides. It is the Garden of Eden of corn. I want some. I was actually surprised, though, by the arc that was going on because, I mean, we've seen two Children of the Corn films. I pretty much felt I knew what these films were going to be, right? Pious children against the world. And so when you get these two, I think they're the two seeds that will grow into a a urban harvest but right away we're introduced to maria and her brother malcolm and joshua becomes friends with them and i'm like okay it, it was about a half hour in that i realized this would be a story of brother against brother not two evil kids from gatlin in chicago but I expected it to just be they'd both be evil. Yeah, I think you're right, but I think what they eventually tell us is that Joshua isn't from Gatlin. He moved to Gatlin. If you're from Gatlin, you're a killer kid, and that's why Eli is a killer kid. I do wonder how much, I guess we kind of talked about at the beginning of this film, Joshua doesn't seem too bright, doesn't seem to catch on, like his dad's a scarecrow, and he's like, where's daddy at? But later on in this film, the priest, who's also the principal of this maybe public school, perhaps private, like he drops a line that some people could notice that Eli is evil. Like, the mom, she has that sense, and so when she's going through Eli's luggage, she doesn't see corn, she sees cockroaches and bugs fleeing out of there, but the dad's taken in by Eli, and I guess he has, I don't know, some kind of magical power to turn you to his side, but some people could see through that. And I guess Joshua, he's lived with them. We don't know how long he's been adopted, but he doesn't see through that. He doesn't get that his brother's evil. He just, what, thinks he's jealous when he goes playing basketball and, and Eli doesn't get a play and Eli gets separated to another class in the school. He has a turning point. At some point, he goes from defending his brother to actually telling his new friends to stay away from him. And it's difficult to say exactly when that happens. I think it's when the mom dies. But for the first few kills, he doesn't seem to connect the dots and I just think that that's because he's a well-meaning naive kind of good-hearted person he just wouldn't presume that any boy that shared his bed would be a cutthroat killer (laughs) 
And you talk about being able to see through. There was a really gross scene that was very effective for me when Eli is just planting his corn and you see the mother and father, they're about to have sex after peering in on their teenage foster kids. I would think you'd knock first, but they're about to have sex and they're kissing and they start like puking black cream corn. Is that what it was? I thought it was maybe ATM gone wrong. I thought there was shit involved and weird fetishes. <laughs> oh. Yeah, my mind didn't go there. Well, fertilizer, fertilizer, that's needed for corn. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it it was definitely earth. I don't think that it was corn. I thought it was corn because he was planting the black kernels and what was coming out was kind of chunky. So I thought it was corn, but the father is like loving it. He has this big, you know, I guess you'll say shit eating grin, Jacob. with the black teeth and the mother meanwhile she goes to spit it out in the sink and gargle yeah that was effective i do feel like a lot of the special effects work here is pretty effective they have a bum kill here soon too that the field needs blood and fortunately for them they are on the south side where derelicts that are drunk come wandering through abandoned factories the first kill is a drunkard who gets stalks in his eyes and becomes a severed head or i don't exactly get it but he's the first offering to I did think it would be cool if, like, they were cleaning up the homeless problem (laughs) through this. It's only one homeless dude. He is going to come back in kind of a cool scene at the end. But it seems so out of place that, oh, it's just one random guy walking through the cornfields that it's going to kill. And we're not going to come back to him for a while. Everything in this, I would like to see amped up. I think it could only make it better. And I think it's just they were going a while and they needed a kill. I agree with that. The first half hour of this was actually pretty action-packed with the death of the father, getting into the Chicago area, planting the corn, having the puke sex. All of that was there. But then there's a long time where there's no deaths and they had to kill somebody. They kill the homeless guy. This is the period where Eli starts to preach and get his little gang together in the school of people to worship he who walks behind the rose and i mean there are a couple creepy scenes here like the mother as we said knows that eli's the evil one but he asks her for a kiss goodbye and then sticks his tongue in her ear i mean that's creepy on 18 levels yeah they're going for dare i say it more psychological unnerving kind of scares rather than just gross outs and yeah this is a slasher movie you probably should have a few more kills here but i don't think it's as barren as what you're describing we get a kill about every five to eight minutes. I mean, the bum is the kickoff to the field of blood, but soon we bring the social worker back. You know, the woman that actually was responsible for bringing Eli and Joseph into this family's life, she uncovers the fact that Eli has lived for decades as a small boy in Gatlin. She is mailing those newspaper clippings to Amanda when Eli decides to go after her with some magic uh, I don't know what does he do here candle (laughs) spell I want to give a shout out because the social worker most people probably know this actress Yvette Freeman she was on ER for its entire run as Nurse Adams 15 years I watched her on television so it was nice to see somebody in this film I could recognize I've got 
questions about this social worker. So she actually got those documents mailed off because they'll show up later at the house. I could only presume. I was wondering. Because she dies. She's going to die in this scene. I don't know why she's looking at 1960s papers for Eli. Like, I don't know what her, her obsession is for wanting to <laughs> dig into this. It seems so weird. I'm like, oh, this is just because he was one of the original kids from the first Corn film. I thought it was going to be some tie like that. But no, this is, they're changing the mythology here. It's not just this cult from one time. Now there's a Harvest Moon that he's associated with and he's been alive for decades. It's it's a cool kill. I do like this scene, this kill, like the way her face melts. It's very uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, I definitely thought that with the face melting, not nearly as good looking as Spielberg 15 years earlier, but <laughs> it gave me a little bit of a smile. It was, again, an inventive death. And it's a moral kill. Keep in mind, Eli has a code. And I think that's been missing from the earlier movies. It's been implied, but not really clear. But Eli, he believes in a very ascetic kind of life. That modesty and not giving into materialism is the way to be. She's a smoker. That's established from her very first appearance on camera. So how else is he going to kill her but to smoke her out? And there's those kind of playful kills throughout the movie. I mean, he asks for a drink of water as the... Mother is turned into a fountain of blood. I mean, they do have some fun here with him. I think he gets to call how it turns out for each one. I think it's a judgment that he's proclaiming when he takes people out. I was bummed, though, because I thought he was going to have the same psychic powers as the girl who drew pictures with crayons. Like, he's sitting in school and he's drawing a picture of the family, but then he just X's out the mom and she dies with from that pipe in the back of the head. Cool kill, but I'm like, that seemed like a missed opportunity. If you're trying to mix all this mythology together, why just draw this random picture and then cross? I guess because that's going to come out later in the plot and they're just assume that he caused the murder because they found that crayon drawing. And I think he, to some degree, Degree controls the corn. Even if he's not standing there, I think by drawing it and thinking about it, he knows his foster mother is in his rows and his thoughts are what bring the corn to life to kill her. I mean, it's basically how the foster father or stepfather died in the first scene. Eli was commanding the corn. This is the one moment in the entire movie. Corn sex, melty face, all of it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. The one time I go, oh, was the foster mother's death. Because she takes a fall on a pipe. Oh. Yeah, as a kid, I, I tripped and had a pipe go, like, partway through my knee. Not Ooh. fun. It always gets a reaction out of me when I see this kind of stuff. Pipes going through heads. Ugh. Yeah, it's a good one. If you want splatter, this is a moment for you. And I do think it's the turning point. It's not really well articulated in the script, but I think up to this point, Joshua has been more or less okay with his weird little brother and his little tirades. And after this point, he is telling Maria and Malcolm to stay away from Joshua. They don't sleep in the same bed anymore. I think he knows that Amanda, the mother, was killed by Eli's hand. He just can't prove it. Yeah, one of the things I think they could have done a bit better here with Eli is showing him growing his cult. Like, we have this scene where he's making fun of the priest, so the priest is like, why don't you come up here and do a sermon? And so he shows him up, and the priest, like, makes him stop thought he was just jealous, but maybe because he was converting kids to him. And later on, we'll see a couple little scenes where he's preaching and kids are following him. I, I felt like they needed to draw that out more, that he was getting a following. It was kind of a surprise when all of a sudden he's got a bunch of kids surrounding him when he's been a loner the whole time. I completely agree, Jacob. I thought that he was still the outcast. And honestly, at most schools I've gone to, going up and making pious speeches isn't the quickest way to make a whole lot of friends. And especially with those who are pulling knives on you to begin with. Yeah, he gets 
Key Loke on his side. Yeah. I didn't expect that. And there's one moment where they tell us, they don't even show us, but Joshua and Malcolm are standing around and Malcolm's like, these basketball courts should be full. Nicholas Brendan should be back here playing, but they're all off with Eli. I'm like, they're following Eli? That was out of the blue to me. I didn't see that in the film. See, I don't think they were converted by his words. In fact, I don't even know why he's in their class because he's at least five years younger than everybody (laughs) else in this cast. Most people are not children. They're late teenagers in this story, but he is getting into their minds not through his words or his thoughts. It's because he went down to the school cafeteria and slipped some of his corn kernels in the food. I think it's because they've eaten his magic corn that he's under this spell. I think that's the same reason why the dad is pushing so hard to sell that corn on the exchange. I think that once you eat Eli's corn, he has you. Oh, okay. So was there corn he slipped in? I saw him drop some cockroaches. I thought it was roaches, but then I thought they were maybe corn kernel. I couldn't tell if that was <laughs> bugs. You know, they're kind of the same thing. He has a suitcase that sometimes is full of bugs and sometimes full of corn. I just assumed whatever it was, whether they were kernels or cockroaches, that that was what was doing it. It was a magic spell. See, I didn't get that from here. I thought he was just a really persuasive speaker and I wasn't getting that. But yeah, it was that T. Loke is the one he really has to convince, though. T. Loke goes after him with a knife and chases him into the corn. And from a different child, if we had Isaac from the first movie instead of Daniel Cerny as Eli, saying the line, I'm not out here with you, you're in here with me, would come across dangerous. This kid, he kind of has a good look, but he does not come across as scary the way Isaac or even Malachi did. Well, he's better than Micah was, but yes. <laughs> uh, I want to forget about that second movie. Yeah, I They have not found anyone with the physical attributes to be as creepy as Isaac. He's just a kid, and that comes through. It's just a child actor. Nothing special about him. Here's my question. As this film ramps up and we get towards the end, Eli goes after the priest, and we see this upside-down crucifixion scene, and then one of the statues comes alive, and like it's really hilarious looking, as it's obviously someone's in a rubber mask. <laughs> That was really, really funny. I loved it. It's, it's a Madonna. Yeah, but what did that statue do? Like, we see it come alive, and then Joshua and Malcolm rush into the chapel, and it's not there, like, choking him out. I missed opportunity. I wanted to see more of that bad rubber mask. Was that a mask? I really thought that was just a person with their eyes closed, and then they used makeup to draw open eyes on their eyelids. It was creepy. It was. I do notice some very jarring edits here. I do think that they maybe had to assemble this from what they were able to film instead of having maybe everything that they hoped for. Yeah, I agree. There were lots of moments where I thought they were building up the things and then they just didn't do it. I thought T-Loke would definitely be killed. When he gets sucked into a magic field and he's baited the way that he is, I wouldn't expect him to come back. Or at least I would expect to see some grossness before he fell into the corn cult. But I just feel like this movie could have used a little bit more money to get the kind of Nightmare 3 Freddy visions that it's aspiring to have. Yeah, here's my favorite cut. My favorite edit, if you will, of this film. So they realize they have to get Eli's Bible, that they have to destroy the Bible to destroy Eli, which means they have to go back to Gatlin, Nebraska, right? It's in Nebraska. I looked this up. I went to Google Maps. So did I. So did I. It said 70 miles. That's the sign it shows. 70 miles between Chicago and Gatlin. Bullshit. The closest spot to Chicago would be like (laughs) Omaha. Yep. And that's seven and a half hours each way. Yes. 
I'm glad we all checked out the geography of this film. I usually do, and particularly when it's in areas that I've lived before. And I'm like, Chicago, I, I never made a day trip to Nebraska. Not once when I lived there. <laughs> Not for some good corn? Of course, why would you want to, even if it was only 70 miles away? The corn! Yeah. Yes. But, you know, he could have done it in a day, but it would have taken all day long. Yeah, there's no way that they're able to... They leave in the morning, you know. He wakes Malcolm up. They go off to find this corn Bible. He could have gotten back in time for the ceremony that's presumably happening at midnight or whatever it is but not 70 miles they got the mileage completely wrong but i do like that what happens in the cornfield the scarecrow comes back where's the fucking scarecrow it's it's another rubber mask but again i am enjoying the b moviness of this film when malcolm dies and his what is that his head stretching with his spine connect his spine's like six stories high it seems that was like a return of the living dead three type of death to me you know with the extended spine and things it was reminding me of the homeless man at the end and the traction. I thought it was the exact same puppet, Arnie. I literally thought it was the same puppet. <laughs> I, I do like this stuff, though. I, I like these deaths. That's all this film has going for it. Are some pretty fun deaths. Some, you know, it, nothing scary, but I'm enjoying it. I'm laughing with it. I also like that they're calling back to the first two films. I brought up the question of continuity, but Father Nolan was having flashbacks and seeing the history of Gatlin and dream sequences. Now, they really piss poor edited Eli into a couple of those scenes and it doesn't look right at all but we get to re-see the death of the parents in Gatlin and the death of the doctor from the last time and there's a good number of revisited kills from Gatlin here they're trying. They're not totally swearing off the other ones. This isn't the kind of sequel that has absolutely nothing to do with the other movies, even though it's made by people that had absolutely nothing to do with the other movies. They are trying to make something in continuity, and I think we here at Now Playing always appreciate an effort, even when it's not particularly successful. I could have used a lot less dream sequence here, but, you know, it was fine. It lets you know that this was Children of the Corn and not just random urban horror movie. Now, they do find that Bible in the dirt, a little bit of trivia from my research and my reading of the Creep Shows book. That's actually a copy of Night Shift that they just glued some corn to the cover of. <laughs> That's funny, yeah. They're about as faithful to it as the other stories. Why not? You can pretend this is a Stephen King story, but I don't see much of it. But this book is apparently the source of Eli's power, and he gave that up to Father Nolan when he was on the cross. Do you think I'd be so stupid to keep it with me? And the father, he, he's dying, but he's like, why would that be stupid? <gasps> That's your weakness! Right. I think this book even made an appearance in the first one. There was, the kids all had to sign something on their 18th birthday. It was like their acknowledgement that they were about to be killed for Hubie. And so, yeah, I think that it felt like I'd seen it before, although used in a very different way here. Again, they're callbacks. Not in continuity, but they're callbacks. I gotta ask, would joining Hubie be so bad? I mean, I know we're supposed to be with sweet Joshua. You know, he's the one that's reached out and created friends and blended and assimilated. But maybe Eli has a point. I mean, when you bow down to the corn, you stop smoking, you stop drinking, you stop doing all the bad things that all the bad adults do in this movie. Wouldn't the school system be better if they <laughs> serve this corn in their cafeteria. Yeah, some of the Catholic priests definitely think so. <laughs> That's, they're like, yeah, who cares if there's a cult going on in our school? The kids are good. Let's keep in mind they kill them at 18. That's the downside of the worship. 
They don't know that yet. And here's the thing. they Obviously, this is not a big debate. This is not a film that is going for heavy ideas. But, you know, I think you need to get into notions of free will and freedom in that. And I don't know if uh, having to kill myself at 18 is worth not having anyone smoke around me. We don't see anybody do that in this movie. Now, if it's still in continuity with the universe, yes, that would be happening. But in this movie, every kid, and I use that in, in air quotes because I think yeah. these are all 20-something actors that are not bound by the Screen Actors Guild's rules for filming with children. I think that's why there are no children in Children of the Corn 3 is that it's very hard to shoot around when they can only be on set for like four hours at a time. 20-somethings? You're being generous. I thought they were at least in their 30s. (laughs) Malcolm certainly looked that way, yeah. Yeah. And actually, Maria, well, I hope she's in her 20s for the thoughts I was having about her. They take Marie in a place where I don't know if I could follow her after she goes there. She's brainwashed by Eli and what? They go on a date over to her parents' house for dinner and murder her parents. Yeah, I was really starting to like her. What she was doing for Joshua was so sweet. But can Joshua still date her knowing that even though it was Eli that influenced her, obviously she was under a trance. But the fact that she did this to her own parents, I think would be disquieting. It would be hard to be intimate with someone that could be so vicious. Yeah, the deaths of her parents was really kind of amazing to see that she was just that complicit in it and they're like oh yeah eat the corn now this corn maybe it's the corn maybe the corn kills them because they're over 18 and if they were under 18 they would have just become followers but that is a good two for death there the way that they just kind of again choke on it and the mom falls over head cracks open like a ceramic vase yeah you got to kill the parents i think that's a, a good staple that was the most effective kills in the original movie and i think it's important to do here they saved it for the end this time but yeah maria kills the parents and then we kill william after After he makes his deal at the Chicago Board of Trade, he comes home only to get a scythe across the neck, and that's the end of him. That's his reward for serving Hubie. That was a little bit of a letdown. After all these inventive deaths, this father, I mean, his wife died. We then cut to a couple weeks later after the funeral scene and he's still selling the corn and everything. He's not too broken up by his wife's death. This guy is an ass and he really deserved a gruesome, drawn out, painful death. I think he's dispatched a little easily. I didn't like him because he didn't like Joshua is the honest truth. No matter what else he was doing, I could write off as saying he was under the influence of the corn or Eli or whatever. But the fact that he was always against our main character and our hero made me think that, yeah, you're right, Arnie. He deserved maybe the most gruesome. He deserved to fall over and shatter. Why did I want to see Maria's parents do that? Yeah, it seemed like there should have been a bigger death for him. He's the one who's spreading the Hubie corn, I guess, off to Germany all over the world. And it seems like, yeah, you would want a bigger death for him. Especially, I agree with you, Stuart, because he is so against Joshua in this film. And I don't like that. I like Joshua. But is the plan, is this Harvest Moon, is the plan that they're going to kill all the parents that night? Are they going to kill everyone in Chicago. I know Chicago's a violent town. There's a lot of murder there. Was that the plan all along, is to just go on a parent killing spree? Couldn't say. I thought it had more to do with raising Hubie because that's what we're actually going to get in the climax here, is we're actually going to finally see a physical body. It's not just going to be some pixelated computer <laughs> graphics or... <laughs> some paintings on the cell. Hand-drawn, yeah, hand-drawn <laughs> animation, whatever that was in the first movie. They're actually going to give us uh, Screaming George 
puppet. And I think that was the right choice. And this also, it was Screaming George, he brought in his Nightmare on Elm Street makeup friend Kevin Yeager to help out with this. Now, you call him Hubie, the people on set named him Jiffy the Corn Beast. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name in Little Shop of Horrors? That's what I was calling it. Audrey 2. Audrey 2, yes. This is Audrey 3, or maybe a slightly uh, mentally challenged cousin of Audrey. I kind of think they went back to King. Stuart, you mentioned how at the end of Children of the Corn 1, you were thinking a little bit about the ending of The Shining. Well, yeah. hell, I've reviewed every Night Shift story over at Books and Nachos, and how many of those things ended with a Cthulhu beast that was fairly indescribable. This was kind of my idea of some vision of a corn Cthulhu. <laughs> I thought it was just a giant root. That's what it looked like to me. But yes, I, Cthulhu root is it was my idea. It had weird teeth, like three fangs. I get a Dark Overlord vibe off of it, but then again, I get a Dark Overlord vibe <laughs> yes. off everything. Yeah, you do. I, to me, this is Carpenter. I was thinking a lot about the 1982 thing. Yes. I think a lot of Screaming George stuff, the way that he plays with, yeah, heads plopping open and all of that. It, it was feeling like when that scene at the autopsy happened and the head crawled away on crab legs is kind of what I got out of this. But yeah, I think it was the right way to spend the money. They didn't have a lot of money on this movie. Maybe some other deaths got compromised. But you got to go out with a big bang. You got to have a giant crab plant monster eating a doll. That's Maria, supposedly. <laughs> Literally, that is a Barbie doll it's holding. Yes, it is a African-American Barbie. <laughs> I love it. That is grab. <laughs> it is hysterical. It is Ed Wood level what the fuck when i saw that i had to rewind i'm like did i just see this character turn into barbie yep that's exactly what i saw yeah and i guess the whole point is is that it's connected to the earth as long as it's connected to the earth it cannot be killed but it's stopped because joshua is able to well both cut the tube that is sucking the girl down into the ground and severing the beast from where he came from thus he cannot exist and that's why he dies or maybe they just ran out of money they say they cut the root i think it could be both it was kind of lackluster i wanted to see it burn i mean the first one they burned him down i think fire would have been a great way to go they were reusing footage again from the previous movies i even think one of the shots of the underground dirt is taken from part one again reuse some of the fields burning but no they just kind of cut him over and that's the end of that it got a better death than Eli did. I mean, they make some mumbo jumbo up about he has to die with the book and that's the brother that gives the fatal slash against both of them. I guess that's Elway to go. It certainly frees Charlize Theron. She pops up there with, uh, I think it's at the one hour, 16 minute, 38 second. If you, if you really want to see her, that's where she's at. Then she has two scenes. She gets a extreme close-up during one of Father Nolan's speeches just before he dies. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, she has two. Congratulations. I'd still rather watch this than North Country. I'd still rather watch her full frontal in Devil's Advocate. But if Eli's dead and Jiffy's dead, then is the corn still magical? We're left believing, I think, that there will be he who walks behind the rose, or I guess he who goose steps behind the rose worshippers in Germany? Das Kinder, das Maze. Yes, I looked that up. <laughs> Never underestimate Hans. Any Hans. Yeah. Genetic engineering Germans. They're going to do something bad with that corn. I just know it. Yes. And I'm all ready for it. I think this would be fun. I know this is not how they're going to follow up a sequel, but it certainly would be fun to try to watch Nazis raising killer corn. <laughs> well, was it fun watching it happen in Chicago? 
Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest? Jacob. I'll say this. I am shocked that three films in, this is the best one. Like, how often can you say that? I guess with nine films. They keep getting better for you, Jacob. They do. I Perhaps we'll get to a green arrow, but this one is not a green arrow, and it even misses out on that brown arrow. You talk about a pat of butter, Stuart. I can't believe it's not butter because it's not. It's that spray <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Yeah, the, the first half of this film doesn't do a whole lot for me. There's a couple of kills, but it's really the last half. Once we get to that social worker and her death, things start picking up for me. I start enjoying the kills more. It, it's gratuitous, goofy fun. The second half of this film, uh, it just misses, though, for a brown arrow for me. Still, you, you gotta have a lot of patience to get to the good stuff. There is some good stuff here if you like. Carpenter-esque. I, I definitely thought of John Carpenter, a lower grade of John Carpenter special effects here. But if you like that stuff, you might want to check it out, but overall it, it's almost a brown arrow it's a uh, whatever's between brown and red i don't know it says a bruised color <laughs> it's a bloody stool yes <laughs> but a slight weak not recommend for me Stuart. These are all going to be not recommend. I mean, truthfully, I'll be surprised if I ever really like one of these movies, but I did it in Silent Night, Deadly Night, where I had the fruitcake versus the lump of coal, and I gave Silent Night 5 a fruitcake. I'm going to give this one a pad of butter. It's not really that good, but it's not bad. I think that if you enjoy trashy slasher movies, this would be perfectly acceptable, and I think you're right. It's difficult to say because I called the first one a kernel of corn. There was something there I liked. Some of the kids were creepy. The opening was upsetting. Would you rather be amused by a campy horror movie, or would you rather have a couple really good scary moments and a lot of tedium? Difficult to say, but I think that you're right. This is probably the best Children of the Corn yet, and for that, I'll give it some butter. They're in better hands. I think that we're getting a better quality of movie because we're with professionals that do this for a living. Dimension knows what they're doing, and they're going to have a quality control, I hope, for this and the remaining films, that's going to make it better than anything we saw at that really shitty last final sacrifice last week. So I'm going to give it the mildest of whatever you want to call it, pad of butter, and just say that, yeah, we've had a diverse crop so far, a kernel of corn, a husk, and a pad of butter. This series is, if nothing, if not diverse. And I started to reset my expectations on that level too, Stuart. I was thinking about it and I'm like, you know, for virtually direct-to-video slash films. I was definitely thinking about Silent Night, Deadly Night 4 and 5 and that kind of thing with this. It's like, at what point do I go for what it is, it's good enough for Green Arrow, even if it's not that good yeah i think you know who you are though i think the people that do like that kind of stuff that's a recommend for you guys and mm -hmm. if you don't know but i think i am that kind of person and that's where i was really trying to reconcile it i am that person who will just enjoy a Wishmaster and understand i mean that's it's not necessarily brown arrow where it's so bad it's good it's just enjoyable trash which is a different type of thing and i started wondering, okay, how will I justify that in a recommend? But this movie didn't make me need to do that. <laughs> I thought there were some good kills in here for what they were. I mean, if you enjoy seeing a human hand grab a Barbie doll and you're pretending it's a Cthulhu monster grabbing <laughs> a person, then it's in here. <laughs> If you like seeing latex rubber ripped and pretended skin, it's in here. But what this film 
failed to do was give me even a guilty pleasure of a character to connect with. One thing both of you said in this podcast that I don't relate to is you like Joshua. I didn't like anyone in this film with the slight exception of Malcolm. Malcolm I kind of went with. I was starting to put a Freddy's revenge kind of parallel here where like Joshua was the Jesse and Malcolm was the Grady and Maria was the Lisa. I mean, I was trying, I was thinking about anything other than this movie because it was not holding <laughs> my freaking interest. Yeah, it sounds like you wish you were watching a Freddy movie. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> wish I was watching any movie but this one. This has some kills that would be fun in, I've discussed that boogeyman compilation thing. It's like pornography of horror movie kills where it's just the good kills for from a series of films. There's a couple deaths in here that it would be worth YouTubing or watching on a boogeyman best of cut, but this movie is not worth sitting through the 90 minutes just for the few pleasures it has. It's a week not recommend, and it's not the best of the series because it still doesn't live up to the creepiness of the first one or have characters as compelling as Isaac and Malachi. This corn didn't grow in my dirt. I don't think anybody thought it was great, but I would just say this. I wasn't a annoyed by it and I was so annoyed by the movie last week. That's the difference between a husk and a pad of butter. You know, you really, there was nothing good except a kill or two last week. That's what it's sounding like you're saying about this movie. I thought start to finish this was completely watchable. Well, Stephen King agrees with you. What? He saw this? Better than Kubrick's Shining? <laughs> If you ever wondered what Stephen King does in his spare time... Does he have spare time? He seems to write a lot. <laughs> a lot. Stephen King and Mick Garris were hanging out one day, and Garris asked him if he'd seen every derivative work of his books. And they went down the list, and it turned out that there were three things he hadn't seen. Two of the Children of the Corn and Return to Salem's Lot. <laughs> A movie I did also recommend. <laughs> and so he decided that he should finish off, and this one he felt was pretty enjoyable. He got some base thrills. He said he's a fan of horror, and this was the one of the three that he enjoyed most when he caught up on his own ripoffs or whatever it is. His name's still in the credits. <laughs> exactly. He can't totally disown these children. They use him quite often in dropping the name. I get it, and I think we're all in agreement, more or less. It is what it is. And we've seen worse, a lot worse here at Night Shift. This is more enjoyable than Mangler 2, and this is more enjoyable than Graveyard Shift. I mean, I gave it a consideration for a green arrow, but yeah, it's not there, but I'm hopeful now. I really, after part two of Children of the Corn, I never returned to this series. I never wanted to walk with him behind the rose again. Now, I'm curious where they'll take this. I'm enjoying the fact that they keep going back to he who walks behind the rose. He's a mystery to me. Are we going to go to space? That's what I I want to know. That is the next guilty pleasure for me. I don't think so. We're going to go there with our <laughs> donation series, though, Leprechaun. That's true. And starting this Friday. But we do it for donors this time. And so hopefully you can join us for a donation of $15 or more. Gold donor, you gets me gold with Leprechaun. We are going to go to space and to hood. 
Yeah, you know, and I was so against this, but these corn <laughs> movies are starting to make me think that they could be fun. They could be fun. There is a way to make it work, but I just, I don't know. That leprechaun. I did see the first one. I've seen none of the others. I'm not optimistic, but for a gold donation, I will do it I, with a jig. Yes, it's going to be seven films with the conclusion being a new straight-faced return to the serious horror Leprechaun Origins. I'd like to see him get back to one scary movie. I can't imagine. And we're going to have some familiar faces in there too with Jennifer Aniston and Coolio. And for those who can't get enough Hobbit, we are doing something brand new, a platinum level donation where you're also going to get three more bonus podcasts we're going to do the animated hobbits for $30 or more that means you get a total of 16 bonus podcasts the six peter jackson lord of the rings the seven leprechaun and then the three animated lord of the rings all the details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And as always, these are available for a limited time. You have until the end of this calendar year to donate, and then they go into the vault as lost as the one ring. And on the regular feed next week, we keep being corny with Children of the Corn for The Gathering. They got Naomi Watts. I'm, I'm loving that they're digging up actors I know. I think that's going to help. Charlize this week, Naomi next week. Let's keep doing it. I'm ready for it. We're, we'll be gathering for that next Tuesday. So until then, we'll be back next week, Malachi. We'll be back next week. I'm leaving now. I'm gonna go find some people and tell them about what's happening here in Gatlin. I don't think they'll believe me at first. I don't think I believe it myself. But they will. Eventually. You guys all belong in an asylum somewhere. Looney Ben. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Congratulations, Tiger. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Pretty much all you need now that the Sopranos is dead and buried. <laughs> Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another film based on Stephen King's books and short stories. This is the word of he who walks by in the rose. We do this work for Shine Show. At our sister podcast, booksandnachos.com, you can hear Arnie's reviews of the original Stephen King books and short stories on which these films are based. You should look it up. You still remember how to read, don't you? In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Maximum Overdrive, The Mangler, Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, and more. Find dozens of Stephen King movie reviews at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Well, these kids watch too many horror flicks. Also at our website, you can find reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Scream, Transformers, Robocop, and hundreds more. Movies are filled with violence, blood, and bodies, naked bodies, rising together, glorifying fornication. Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. Can't you for one moment conceive of something in this universe that's larger than you? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Two hundred dollars. Uh-uh, Joby. How much? Thirteen thousand hundred dollars. 
Now playing's Children of the Corn retrospective series is edited by Heath, Casper, and Arnie. I don't want to be the one in charge when the heads start doing 360s and they're hurling pea soup. Now playing credit narration by Brock. He filled me with the words. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Now playing podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. That won't matter to Isaac and Malachi. They'll take it as a sign. You speak for the others or only for yourself. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. I am the word and the giver of his laws. Disobedience to me is disobedience to him. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. So what do we do about the children? Tell their story. Let the healing begin. It's not too late for that, is it? No. And other people whose names I don't care if I pronounce right either, because you've not heard of them. What about Garvin Funches? <laughs> is that a name? Yeah, he's T-Lock. <laughs> T-Loke. Oh, yeah. What's really funny is I got that confused when I was looking at IMDb. I thought Tone Loke would be in this film. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a name to have in your credits. She only gets one. Everybody else that he gets two, she gets one. They didn't know what they had. Also, the screen they blew. They blew. <laughs> And sees dollar signs in Eli's magic corn, which grows in fast, shitty so which grows fast in city. Sh- <laughs> Say city. that three times fast. <laughs> it's down to Joseph to stop his foster brother. Through a dying father, Nolan, it's revealed the source of Eli's power. Joshua. Josh. You're right. Dre names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the downfall of the series. Too many kids named with J in the first letter. There's even a Jacob. Yeah. Right away, we're introduced to, is it, is it Maria? I put the wrong name. No. Uh, yeah, Maria, Maria is the girlfriend. Malcolm. Mal- Mal- for Mal- some Mal- reason, Maria. I put Arnold in my notes. All right. Arnold. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> At the end, starting in December, we're going to cover The Hobbits, which is Unexpected Journey, Return to Smog. and Desolation that- of Smog. <laughs> and it's Smog. I hate it's that. Smog. I, re- I can't tell you how much I hate that. <laughs> You're saying Smaug. I know, it just sounds like a bad British accent. Like, hello, I'm from Smaug. Some bad pirate. (laughs) Leprechaun Origins. I'd like to see him get back to one scary movie. I can't imagine. And we're going to have some familiar faces in there, too, with Jennifer Aniston and Leonardo DiCaprio and Coolio. Leonardo DiCaprio's not in it. Oh, that's Critters. (laughs) 